we will stand with Christ and all we stand with him and look forward to all that God has in store for us because it is thrilling and it is exhilarating and to walk with him is indeed our greatest joy and blessing. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. Revelation, as most of you know, is a difficult book to get your mind around. I want to give you a heads up this morning. Chapter 17, 18, and 19, and 20 over the next four Sundays are the most difficult sections of Revelation. And you may be sitting there thinking, Richard, that's saying something because it's been difficult so far. Uh, and so 17, 18 is pretty tough going. Now, I want to give you a heads up. The language this morning in 17 is graphic, at times grotesque, and I will try as gently as I possibly can uh, to make our way through the passage, but it is a tough passage. It's a passage which focuses on evil incarnate. So please be patient with me as we work our way through Revelation 17. The Apostle John writes these words. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a desert. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She had a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. This title was written on her forehead. Mystery. Babylon the Great the mother of prostitutes, and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Then the angel said to me, Why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides, which has the seven heads and ten horns. The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and will come up out of the abyss and go to his destruction. The inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast, because he once was, now is not, and yet will come. And jump on down to verse 14 for our final passage this morning. They will make war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. With him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading of his holy word. I wonder if you can remember back to when you were six or maybe seven years old and you learned to ride a bicycle for the first time. 
If you were anything like me, you needed training wheels for those first couple of months, and you would work out your balance, and you would work out how to steer, and what was safe, and what was a good speed, and what was not. And then after a couple of weeks, you discovered, that, of course, that your older siblings did not have training wheels and that some of the kids in your class and in your neighborhood didn't have training wheels. And then began the appeal to a higher authority. Mom, I need you to take off the training wheels. Well, when you're a little more confident and when you can manage, Dad, Mom says I have to ask you, take off the training wheels. And so it would go on and on and on and on. And what happened next was, Dad would take off the training wheels or Mom, and they would hold one hand on the handle, the other on the saddle, and they would walk with you, and then they'd let go one, then after a couple of days, they'd let go the other, and before you knew it, you were off and on your own. And at the beginning, it was a little wobbly, and you were a little unsteady, but after a while, your confidence grew, and of course, you fell a few times, but nonetheless, you learned to ride two wheels. And as you did, it was scary and exhilarating all at the same time. When we come to the book of Revelation, it's a little scary and a little exhilarating all at the same time because you're having to be aware of so much symbolism, so much imagery. John writes in what is called in terms of a genre, apocalyptic writing. Let's begin verse 1. John begins, one of the seven angels and the seven bowls, which we touched on last Sunday morning, said to me, come, and I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. The angel carried me away in the spirit into a desert, and there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet, was glittering with gold, precious stones, pearls. She had a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. This title was written on her forehead, Mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abomination of the earth. Now, what are we to make of all of this? Well, allow me please to cut through many hours of reading and research this past week and give you what I hope is a helpful summary. The lady being portrayed there is power and greed and influence. John is describing for us power that is dominant, power that is compelling, greed, violence, chaos, war, evil in all of its manifestations. That's what John is painting. He paints it as a lady sitting on top of a beast covered with blasphemous names. And the imagery John is using is this, that in eternity past, now is, and still to come, there will be seasons throughout history when 
evil will raise its head and be on the ascendancy. And it will bring chaos and war and mayhem. Many will lose their lives. And if you're saying, Richard, can you give me an example so I can get my mind around it? Think of the rise of Nazi Germany in the 1930s and the ensuing greed for power to dominate all of Europe ended up in a world war where statisticians cannot tell us the exact number of people who lost their life. They estimate somewhere between 60 and 90 million people. It seemed that evil was let off its chain and chaos ensued. That's the imagery John is coming up with. If you're needing additional imagery, think of ethnic cleansing in former Yugoslavia in the mid-90s. Think of genocide in Rwanda not that long ago. In your mind, have an image of ISIS in the Middle East beheading people in the public market square or putting them into a cage and setting them on fire. It is barbaric, barbaric behavior. That's what John is painting for us here. But he's also saying to us this, that although at times throughout history, evil will be on the rise, but it will also fall. And we're going to see that next Sunday morning in chapters 18, 19, and so on. But here, evil is what? Dominant, controlling, manipulative, has huge influence in the phrase that John uses, among the kings of the earth. That's what's going on here. And then he takes John to a desert and he shows him this lady once again on the beast and he goes further and he says, the title on her forehead will be mystery, Babylon the great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abomination of the earth. And what are we to make of that? Simply this, that whenever you come across the term Babylon in Revelation, our immediate instinctive response is to think of the ancient Babylonian empire from the Old Testament who ravished what used to be Asia Minor through into what we would call the modern Middle East. Is that what Revelation is talking about? Certainly. But it's also painting the picture and using the term Babylon as an umbrella term, which will have all sorts of issues fitting underneath that umbrella. It could equally be applicable to the ancient Assyrians or the Persians or the Greeks or the Romans. And so what John is describing is this. He's describing a powerful entity, perhaps an individual, more likely to be an empire. And John is saying there will be seasons when they'll be in the ascendancy and then they will lose out. And so that's the roller coaster that John is saying throughout history, you're going to see it. And at times it will be miserable, filled with greed and power and awesome power and dominion and so on. And when he talks about seven heads and ten horns, what does he mean? A head in apocalyptic language throughout Revelation is used as a symbol for authority. And if there are seven heads, that means someone who has incredible authority. Ten horns, what does that mean? That means great strength. That is what's going on here. And so the picture is reasonably clear here. Now as we move forward, what else can we say? that this individual and these empires eventually become drunk through their own power, wealth, influence, 
And John, later on in the chapter, and we didn't get a chance to read this, somewhere between verses 14 and 15, talks about this lady sitting on many waters and sitting on seven hills. And that's the nature of apocalyptic language. It changes with great frequency, and it can from chapter to chapter or sometimes within a chapter. It's a little like having a dream. Do you ever had a dream and you think, now I'm just beginning to get my head around this, suddenly something else happens, and someone else comes in to the dream you have no connection with what happened previously. That's the kind of thing that's going on right here. Now, having said all of that, you may be saying, Richard, is there one overriding theme in Revelation that would help me understand what John is talking about? Is there one thing you can kind of summarize it, boil it down? What is the bottom line? Well, the Apostle Paul, writing some years earlier, in Ephesians chapter 6, writes these words. And he writes, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. Now, we know enough about Scripture to know that Scripture addresses all sorts of issues from prayer and Christian moral standards to living out our faith in the messy distraction of everyday life. It talks about God answering prayer. It talks about His love and His grace towards us and the thrill and the excitement of knowing Him and walking with Him every day. And that is all throughout Scripture. But there's an additional theme that we don't often touch on in Sunday morning. And the theme is this, that that which was, which is, and which is still to come throughout all of history, eternity past, eternity still to come, there is spiritual and moral warfare going on for the heart and mind and soul of humanity. Christ came into our world in order that we would come to know him and enjoy him and be thrilled by him. But when you engage in a relationship with him and you grow in that relationship, you seek to be a disciple of Christ, what you will discover is this, that sometimes that is not easy. Sometimes that is the most difficult of all choices and there's spiritual warfare going on. And that spiritual warfare, we touched on it last Sunday morning, will seek to convince you that if you're going to follow Christ every day, aren't you a little narrow-minded? Isn't that a kind of belief for your grandparents and your great-grandparents? You're kind of out of touch. It is no longer the soundtrack to our lives. It's better just to kind of smile and nod and say, yeah, we used to believe that, but we don't anymore. Now, that may not be evil incarnate as was being described. But when our faith begins to be dealt with almost in an indifferent, laissez-faire, the result is the same. That it's marginalized and minimized in society and culture around. Look and say, do you still believe that today? That's what John is saying here. He is saying there is war going on for the heart and mind and soul of humanity. 
That's the picture John is painting. And he is saying that throughout history there will be seasons when it will be more acute and more acute and more acute and it will rise and fall at different times. But notice what he says in verse 14. They will make war against the Lamb. And the Lamb, of course, in Revelation is Christ. But the Lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And with him will be his called chosen and faithful followers. What is John saying? Well, let me try and put it in a nutshell and then we'll apply our passage. It's this. John is saying that before the beginning of the world, he who was will be there at the end because he has in his sovereign, providential, eternal decrees been leading, guiding, directing all of history and all of humanity in order that we would fall in love with him and come to know him. And when you are willing to take a stand for your faith and things are not going well and when you're under the gun and the pressure is on and you are tempted to forsake Christian moral and spiritual standards, understand this. John is saying, Lord of lords and King of kings will be there for you. He will be supporting you. One hand will be on the handlebars and the other will be in the saddle and he'll be running alongside you, looking after you. He will be there for you to make sure you keep your balance and don't fall off. That's the point John is making Now, you may be sitting this morning saying, Richard, I get that, I understand that, but give me something for this week. Let me apply Revelation 17, and here it comes. In a couple of months, we will celebrate as a church our 170th birthday. Now, some of our original elders are still here, and they're faithfully getting on with it. hundred and seventy years is a long time. And I wonder what would be said by those six elders who formed First Presbyterian Church hundred and seventy years ago if they could come back today. Incidentally, two of them were from Glasgow, Scotland, which I thought was interesting. The first person to be baptized was a lady in her late 20s, and she was baptized along with her slave. Isn't that something? Six elders in the entire congregation in those early days was a young lady and her slave. And throughout the 170 years, God has faithfully blessed us. He's equipped us. He's enabled us. He's calling us to be the people of God he longs for us to be. And we find ourselves at the center of a city that is growing so fast our city fathers can't keep up with the construction that's taking place. Greenville has consistently been in the top 10 cities of places to visit and live and work over the last decade. And will continue to be. And we have the enormous privilege of being the people of God at the heart of a city. 
And I cannot help but wonder what is God doing to us, not so much in the first century when John was writing, but in the 21st century. Remember to whom John was writing? He was writing to seven congregations who lived at the heart of their cities in the year AD 95. And throughout Revelation, we hear the call again and again and again and again. There will be times when, as Christians, you are tempted to give up, but hold the course, persevere, keep going. And we have the enormous privilege of being the spiritual heart of the city. What does that mean in ordinary, everyday language? Richard, help me work that out. It means this. That people throughout Greenville, especially those who live downtown, will be able to say this of us. That is a church. It's a church. It's a secure spiritual home. It's a place that is life-giving and life-affirming. It's a place where prayer is a priority. Worship is the highlight of their weekend. It's a place who are committed to Christian moral and spiritual standards. It's a people who are certainly not perfect. And yet we're not who we once were. And we're not fully who we need to be. But we're heading in that direction. And for all of the joy and celebration that we get out of being in the lineage of a church 170 years old, our watchword in these days is this. We are a people whose dreams are greater than our memories. Greater than our memories. Who is God shaping and fashioning us to become? Because when we take a stance for spiritual and moral standards, we are seeking to be Christ-like. And when you take that stand in this day and age, you will be in for some trouble. Please hear me when I say that. If you do not think we are less moral and less Christian as a nation than we were 25 or 30 years, let me say very gently and as pastorally as I can, wake up. Wake up. Folks, our culture and our society has so much to give us, so much to be enjoyed, but in the midst of all of that, there are deep and serious concerns about the moral and spiritual temperature of our nation. And we, as parents, grandparents, individuals, have some choices to make. And where are we going to stand? Because when we stand for him, he will stand with us, leading, guiding, and directing. But if we marginalize and minimize Christ, he will take us at our word and let us. We have choices to make on human sexuality, on marriage, the sanctity of life. Where will we stand and we will stand with Christ. And all we stand with him. And look forward to all that God has in store for us. Because it is thrilling. And it is exhilarating. And to walk with him is indeed our greatest joy and blessing. 
Let me close with this. The beginning of the year, we looked at several New Year's resolutions from a spiritual perspective. And this is the one I want to leave with you this morning. It's a tough question. What single thing that you plan to do this year will matter most in 10 years and in eternity? And I cannot help but wonder if it's this, that by being part of this congregation, week by week by week, by praying and giving and supporting, to be here, to be the people of God, will impact our children and our grandchildren for generations to come, because we will show them there is a better way, a fuller way, a richer way, and it's His way. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this wonderful passage of Scripture this morning. We freely confess we have not dealt with it as thoroughly as we might, and yet there has been enough there to take us into a new week. Equip us, enable us, please, to live out our faith at the heart of this city in order that others might come to be overwhelmed by your love and your grace. Father, thank you that you have called us for such a time as this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Do you need prayer for something or someone in your life? First Presbyterian Church offers a prayer service each Tuesday evening at 7 o'clock. Our prayer ministers will quietly intercede for you or anyone you're representing who needs prayer. 